Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Camilla. She is super smart and driven and has huge passion for entrepreneurship, innovation and purpose-driven businesses. After Camilla graduated from Oxford, she worked at Bain for several years and then moved into the VC investor world where she became a partner quickly. In 2013, she invested into Gusto and since then we've become good friends doing spinning classes together. In this episode, Camilla will talk about why some companies fail or succeed and how she founded Eka Ventures, a VC fund focusing on proposition, innovation and purpose. Camilla, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I love to deep dive into how to build a purpose-driven venture capital firm. But firstly, I want to know where you grew up. Uh, thanks, Timo. Um, so I was really fortunate. Grew up in London. And then when I was about 11, uh, my parents moved to the countryside near Bath. Had an amazing experience as a child. Went to a range of sort of different schools, all of which was sort of very supportive and enabled a huge degree of autonomy and creativity, slightly less focus on the hard skills. So I think my senior school, you couldn't actually do maths or physics or chemistry uh, past the age of 15. So learned to, wow. to, yeah, it's pretty crazy looking back at it in hindsight, but uh, maybe, maybe for the best um, overall. I now have a British passport, but I grew up in Germany, obviously, um, given the thick accent. But yeah, it's all about math and statistics and this stuff. So this sounds sounds really fascinating to me. What did you kind of get from your parents in terms of values when you look back at the first, I guess, you know, 18 years? How did you feel your parents and where you grew up influenced you today? It's a great question. Um, I think I've Reflected on this over time. So my parents are very, very creative. Neither of them had been to university before. So my mother's an artist and my father's an entrepreneur that sort of started in the music industry. So we just had a huge amount of autonomy as children. So we were very much in the camp of being given lots of opportunity, but also being enabled to fail and sort of decide where we wanted to spend our time and what we wanted to do. And that's something that I think has really influenced the career I've sort of taken to date um, and also probably the focus that I have when I look for founders around founders that are sort of self-motivated and empowered to try and drive themselves to be sort of continuously better. I mean, probably the best example of that is I didn't spend all that much time at school. So whilst I sort of enjoyed it, I got bored quite quickly. And, you know, at senior school, I ended up spending a lot of time with horses where I sort of show jumped and spent two to three days a week uh, with a trainer and then also sort of built a horse trading business on the side. And I guess not all parents would have enabled that, but they definitely allowed it and supported um, that type of behavior. 
Wow. Okay. That's really, um, that's really productive. So I also didn't spend that much time in school, but I did much less productive stuff. Um, I don't want to get into. Um, how long... <laughs> Probably much more fun. <laughs> well, I'm not sure, but um, how much, how long did you run that business for? Uh, so ran it for about six or seven years. Wow. Um, so started when I was sort of 14 or 15. And then at some point at university, maybe when I interned at Morgan Stanley, I decided it was uh, time to, uh, to put it to rest. Wow, really fascinating. And um, what did you study? Um, so I studied law at university, I think probably because I didn't have those sort of technical skill sets. And it felt like it was a really interesting subject in which it covered a range of different topics but it set you up really well if you wanted to go into a business career at a later date and um, I studied at Oxford and had an amazing tutor uh, called Mindy who's the contract law guru in that space and I think through that just learned a huge amount about how to sort of build problems and uh, break problems down and then build them back up again and to think through how you can take the same building blocks and come out with different answers. And I think um, the law course at Oxford is really amazing because it's very much philosophy based. So you do things like Roman law and you do the philosophy of law. So it's much less about the rule based um, learning that you have in some other legal courses. And it's more around like what would a perfect world look like and how you sort of reason your way through to that. Um, so great experience uh, there. Couldn't recommend it more highly to people. I mean, Oxford, clearly a, a very competitive place full of really driven, passionate, intelligent people. How did you feel about it from a competitive perspective? What kind of did it bring out in you? How did you feel back then? You know, some people have imposter syndrome. Some people get ultra competitive. How, how did you feel about it? So I loved it. Um, I would say, um, so I went to university slightly later. So I had sort of two years off between school and university um, where I'd sort of initially focused um, on show jumping as a sort of potential career and then had done a term at Newcastle and realized I wasn't able to achieve what I wanted to achieve um, on the course that I was doing. So I actually had to drop out and reapply to Oxford. So I think by the time I got to Oxford, I was like super, super focused on wanting to sort of optimize the opportunity that I'd been given and really sort of try and make a success for Mindy, the tutor that had sort of kindly allowed me uh, allowed me in. So really, really loved everything about it. Loved the ambition levels, loved the collegiate system, really enjoyed the fact that you were encouraged to have independent thought and all thought was viewed as being important and you could have debates with, I guess, leaders in, in their field. And they were very open to encouraging everybody to have a different point of view and taking that into account. And um, so felt the experience was really amazing. Met so many incredible people that I'm still friends with uh, today and also in a sort of professional capacity, work with a number of those people. So for me, it was really game-changing. I think it was the first time that I had seen people with the level of ambition that some of those uh, individuals had and also applied in a way that was really uh, supportive and collegiate. And then paint a picture to me. You said you went to Morgan Stanley to do an internship. I guess this must have been right at the, the total peak of the investment banking craziness before the financial crash came. How did it feel in investment banking back then? How was Morgan Stanley like? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty mental. So it was 2007 that I did an internship. <laughs> uh, I actually ran the Investment and Finance uh, Society at um, Oxford. And so we had all these investment banks in, they were throwing big parties and trying to get everybody to come and join them. So definitely saw the sort of boom side of that. Actually, the what during my internship, there was the first sort of flash crash of 2007, mm -hmm. which I think was the precursor to some of the future uh, crashes. 
And so there was a definite change in sentiment during the two months um, I was there, even though it was a very short period of time, I think it had moved into high levels of confidence into it. Like, is this a precursor of something happening in the future? So fascinating time to be there and to start to see that transition happen. Uh, so you're clearly much smarter than I am. I didn't I didn't see the signals. So I like happily joined investment banking in 2008 when it was too late and like joined pretty much at the trough, which was a different experience. So you then decided to leave, um, or I guess it was an internship, but you then started at Bain. Why did you think banking was wrong? Why consulting? Yeah, it's a great question. I definitely thought about sort of both of them. So I spent some time sort of considering considering both routes. I think one moment, I guess, really stood out for me. So I knew long term that I wanted to be sort of involved with businesses, thought that that was most likely to be in the investing route. And I remember sort of speaking to an MD at the time and we were putting a number into the model and ask, and I was asking him why that number was going into the model. And he was like, so that we get the output that we want, um, <laughs> the number that we want. And I was like, wow, this is like really not inspiring. Like I'm not great at modeling. Like I was really excited <laughs> about learning about drivers of business. And then I remember my interview at Bain and it was all around like case studies and drivers of business. And they were very much focused on that sort of principle of value creation. And so ultimately decided uh, to join them and really glad that I sort of spent the early part of my career there. Uh, but definitely luck rather than design, I would say. So I taught statistics at university. I read every book by Damodaran, who's like the, the New York Stern professor on valuation. And I really believed valuation is science. And then I went into banking and I was literally told, this should be the outcome. Now go and spend 100 hours on back solving this so that the model says exactly that. And I got really frustrated. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, because <laughs> with a lot more art and sales than hard science and yeah just massively disappointed so um what what like skills did you learn at bain what did you really appreciate so I, th I think the the biggest learning for me at bain was the importance of people and i think that's definitely something i've tried to take into into sort of my sort of investing role so bain was very very people orientated and i remember speaking to um, sort of HR at some point, and they were like, we have a process for hiring people where we genuinely believe that every person that joins the firm can be very successful. And if they're not, then the key question we ask ourselves is like, why not? And what's happened in the process, either the hiring process or or when they're sort of within the business as to why they're not successful. And that's probably something we as an organization have done wrong. And so I think that's always really, really stuck with me that you know, despite the fact it's, um, you know, a relatively large company and it's a very high performance culture, they were really focused on understanding individuals and trying to put a process around both hiring and then supporting them once you're in the firm. And then they just built an amazing culture. Um, so even today, even though I left rather a long time ago now, probably further for yeah, a few years more than I'd like to admit, um, still very much identify with that culture. I think they just do an excellent job bringing people into that culture. Yeah, I mean, I'm usually fascinated by Bain's um, focus on people. Uh, and every person you meet has that kind of shared mindset, getting the best out of people, decoupling uh, results from performance and, and really creating that performance culture. And I guess just culturally, so Morgan Stanley versus Bain, what was kind of the biggest takeaway? So I, I think the biggest takeaway is I think at Morgan Stanley, people are often viewed as a resource. 
Um, so whilst it was a good culture and there was lots of learning opportunity, I think there was also a sort of a difference in mentality around like how people were treated. Whereas at Bain, it was very much focused on a high performance culture and they were very clear around you needed to perform. And there was like a very stringent approach to reviews and feedback. Um, but at the same time, they really appreciated individuality and creativity. And you could see that in the sort of background and diversity within the teams at all different levels. So I think that was something that I really sort of took away from that, that you can be a high performance culture and everybody can be different and individualistic, uh, different and have sort of individual perspectives, or you can be a high performance culture where you're very much like a cog in a wider organization. That's a really powerful point. Um, we should talk about that in a second. And why did you then decide to leave and where did you go? So I guess um, when I first started at Bain, I'd only planned on staying two years and I ended up staying five. So it was definitely a difficult decision to leave. I was really fortunate whilst I was there. I spent some time in San Francisco and Bain, which were truly formative for me. I think the time in San Francisco just rebased my level of ambition and it opened my eyes to what was actually possible. Um, so whilst I was there, it was in 2012. So we had sort of Dropbox and Uber and Square and all these amazing companies into the office to sort of have strategy sessions with. And it was really the first time that I think I had seen that the power that technology had to change industries. And I found that incredibly inspiring. And I really wanted to be part of helping to make that happen in the UK. So when I came back, I sort of started speaking to some headhunters about making a move in this direction. Was super fortunate, got introduced to MMC Ventures, which is a UK, well, you know MMC very well. And still remember today, um, I had an interview with John, who was one of the managing partners. And he talked about wanting to create the UK's leading venture firm and was absolutely desperate to join them um, and had a really great time uh, working sort of closely with John. Um, I think Gusto was actually our first or my first investment working with John um, <laughs> and then made a few more after that. <laughs> and how how did it play out? You obviously then sat on, I don't know, five, six boards. You led lots of investments. Before we go into the success, I guess I'd love to hear uh, on a no-name basis what, what you learned from failure. Yeah. So we learned a, a lot from failure, as you know, because you're sort of very close to the sort of MMT portfolio. It's quite a big portfolio. And I, I think individuals are given super high autonomy at a very young age. And so that means that there, you know, there are companies within within the portfolio that, that have been through more sort of challenging periods and there's been some churn in the team. And so I learned a few different things. Um, so I think on the really like positive side of things, I learned the importance of patience and Bruce, the managing director there, is incredibly patient. And, you know, if he believes in the thesis, he'll continue to back companies for a really long period of time, probably beyond a stage where many other people would have sort of lost confidence in those companies. And a number of those companies have now gone on to be incredibly successful. So that was sort of one like key learning um, I took away from that. I think the second thing that I learned from like managing some situations that were that were slightly more challenging was about the importance of being structured as a company and not a startup. And what I mean by that is being like disciplined from day one about things like reporting and management of cash, because a lot of the more difficult um, or challenging situations um, that I encountered were when some of the basics just weren't in place within those companies. Whereas the companies that went on to perform and um, perform sort of better generally were very strong on some of those like hygiene factors from a very early stage. And they operated like companies from day one rather than startups. Definitely something I remember with you and James. I know you um, <laughs> still remember having a chat around unit economics and uh, you're like 
ruthless discipline on how they were going to improve over time. It's funny because knowing what I know today, I felt like I knew absolutely nothing back then. And it was crazy that funds, you know, and really smart people like yourself kind of backed us because it's been such a learning. And I guess just building on your point, you don't have this immediate feedback loop, I guess, in sometimes you know, it takes three, six years until you actually understand if a company is succeeding. At what stage after the investment do you build up this this gut feel, this intuition? How long does it take? It's quite situational. So I think of the investments that I, I've been involved with, I think there's a very small um, number of them that I think you gain very high confidence on very quickly post-investment. And that's because I guess they they operate in an incredibly disciplined way and you can see the growth starting to come through and they're hiring just incredible, an incredible quality of people. And that quality just continues to increase, which I guess feels like a good leading indicator of sort of future success. And then the really big questions come down to sort of market and access to funding. So those that group of companies, I think you gain confidence relatively quickly in. Then there's a group of companies where, Two or three things will be going really well and you'll be like really excited about, but then there'll be a couple of like very big unknowns and that can either be in the sort of hiring side of things or it could be the unit economic side of things or it could be a sort of change in market or competitor landscape that means that you think they still have the potential to be huge outliers, but there's like a couple of big levers of uncertainty that you sort of revisit on an ongoing basis. And then there's a segment of companies where I think relatively soon after investment, uh, you realize that you maybe didn't un- uncover every skeleton in the closet during DD. And th- those companies, you, you know, are more challenging. <laughs> yeah, um, I can only imagine. And what is the commonality of personality traits you're looking for in people when you invest in them? Yeah, so actually, so one of the questions um, I was going to ask, ask you about was related to that. So I think one of the big traits that we look for, and it's very much um, from the experience that we've had working with you and um, people like Aaron from um, Bloom and Wild is a constant desire to learn. So, you know, I always remember that um, early on in our investment, you sort of went, uh, went into the sort of Cambridge exec MBA. Don't think I've ever actually asked you like why you decided <laughs> to do it at that time. So I really believe that the greater the uncertainty, which is certainly the case for any startup, the more you need growth mindset, low ego, high humility, you know, a really deep understanding of believability, i.e. what is it that you know and what do you don't know and who are the best people to consult? Because ultimately, you know X and X is pretty small and you need a lot of other people who figure stuff out and who are smarter than you are. So like in the early days, I felt like, one, I really need to equip myself to be the best possible CEO I can be. Uh, and that means learning and exposing myself to the outside world, despite a very, very challenging week in terms of hours. Uh, and two, I also felt like I had to role model this to some extent and, and to tell people that this is really, really important. So over the last couple of years, I've done the executive MBA uh, in Cambridge, but I've also become a coach. I did a one-year uh, diploma course. I've been on various boards, uh, mainly to learn. And I still feel like I'm on day one. You know, I'm not a very good CEO. I used to be a founder. Now the jury is still out whether I can scale as a, as a CEO. But I'm certainly very, very, very committed. And I feel massively privileged um, to have the job I have. 
So I do everything I can to almost think about this like an athlete and think about how I develop my skill set. How do I need to shift my time from doing to thinking to be very focused on impact? And, and I guess the executive MBA was one thing. Would I recommend this to other founders? I'm not really sure. It really depends on you. I met some amazing people I'm, I love and I'm still friends with. And I learned a lot. I got a coach, my first coach. Since then, I've worked with eight different coaches. So, uh, you know, you got to decide what works best for you, I guess. Now, I've always thought it was really interesting because it felt like it was a time you were just so busy. And it was always something that stood out as being incredibly impressive that you had taken the time that early to invest in into the future skills. And I guess that's something we're now very focused on when we look at um, look, look at sort of founders is, do they have like an ongoing demonstrated desire to learn and continue learning? And then are they aware of sort of strengths and weaknesses and, and what their super strengths are and then where they should hire to sort of support on the areas they might not be as strong on? Um, and then we're also increasingly focused on some aspect of, uh, of sort of demonstrated success as well. And I'm not sure if I ever told you this, but when we did our first made an investment into Gusto, we used to ask a net promoter score question around, would you ever work with this individual again and why? And I still remember that uh, in the ones we did for you, they all came back as 10. And so that set a new benchmark Aww. of uh, <laughs> what we needed to look for. Whom did you actually ask? I can't remember that. Not on a name basis, but I'm just <laughs> curious, like, did I give you referees or... Yeah, so you get, gave us references of individuals that you right. had worked with before. And it was really helpful because I think people can always give soft answers. But when you ask them around the NPS, you normally get a very honest <laughs> an honest view of what people actually think. That's really fascinating. And do you think great founders are visionaries or execution kind of machines or, or coaches or something else? We debate this a lot and we haven't, um, I'd say we're sort of early in still, we're still learning around what the different types of founders are. So I don't think there is one type of successful founder. I think there's many different ways that you can build a business to be successful, but you need to have those traits about constant learning, development, and desire to improve, and I, I guess sort of desire to win as well. But then underneath that, there's lots of different ways that you can sort of build it build a company and so we don't have sort of one playbook where we think you need to be like a fantastic executor executor but but you might not be as a visionary or you need to be a visionary but not not such an executor we think about it as being a founder that is aware of which camp of those they're in and then they build a team around themselves or have the capability to build a team around themselves to sort of make sure as a leadership team they have a sort of full complement um, of the skill sets needed to build a big business I think historically and within our existing portfolio, we have focused more on investing in sort of execution-led founders um, rather than sort of visionary-led founders. But I think there's always been a there's always been a vision, but they've always focused on execution first. But there's definitely different ways of building out businesses and being great founders. Yeah, really fascinating. And I guess moving slightly from the founder to the board dynamics, you set on so many boards over time. What kind of, I guess, constitutes a good board? What are the conditions that bring out the best in people? It's a great question. I think it really changes by stage. So at a very early stage, I think the board is, re is really there 
as a sort of founder sounding board and to sort of help with some of the both strategic and tactical decisions, but it's generally quite informal and is very much there to help the founder think about like what the next sort of three to six months looks like. As the business starts to scale, I think you start to get a very different dynamic come through where there's much more need for those boards to be um, structured. So great quality board materials, um, often pre-reads, often um, founder discussions with board members before to make sure there's a high alignment and then a focus on one or two points of discussion on that board and less focus on sort of reporting, which you definitely can see in some boards there's like limited strategic discussion there's lots of discussion about the sort of numbers which especially as you're starting to scale I think becomes less less helpful from a board perspective and then as you were saying the sort of stage you're going through at the moment I think there is is a point where boards can end up with too many investor directors on the board and that really detracts from the sort of board's role as being a sort of strategic function and also sort of holding holding the sort of founders to account but without having an agenda that might not be always 100% aligned with what's best for the sort of company at that point in time. What's kind of the single worst behavior you've observed that shuts down board discussions? <laughs> so I'd say there's a range of bad behavior and I uh, <laughs> definitely have, uh, have uh, I'm guilty on many occasions. I think uh, being a good board member is a skill that you probably learn over time and unfortunately partly uh, through making mistakes during that journey. Um, so I, I think one of the most harm, harmful behaviours we see in consumer in particular is board members having a point of view on the product and service and really trying to use their status as a board member to change the product direction when often in consumer companies you have tens of thousands of sort of mm. consumer data points which uh, are a much more educated view on like what direction a product should go than an individual investor that has has a particular point of view so i guess that's that's one thing we try very hard not to do and is is definitely tempting in consumer companies and we see it the whole time in a board setting so as a leadership team, we have various operating boards internally every every month. And we have one team charter item that's called Know Your Own Believability. And it literally takes takes the point you just made into account. And we really, really try to avoid that behavior of me search, i.e. I had this issue last week, my friend told me this, and it's just not helpful to anyone at all. So you know, it's a great example. Thank you. Have you um, seen that on the boards that you've worked with as well? Or what's the what's the biggest <laughs> biggest challenge you've encountered? I think I've been like extremely blessed. I've learned so much from really generous people who've invested time and also capital to mentor me um, and and the company and and the team. Some of the best things I've seen are definitely around humility, ability to listen, think deep, listen more than than you talk to be ultra focused on what's the root cause what's the the symptom sanity versus vanity are we discussing at the right level right altitude right time frame strategic versus tactical so i feel like there's a whole good boards um, are not working in the board they're working on the board and they constantly go into this meta layer thinking about the thinking almost and I guess, I mean, the you know, the worst situations I've seen, I, I fortunately haven't seen many times is, I guess, when people get aggressive or forceful or interrupt people, or if there's too much me search, um, as you just said, i.e. people really 
you know, having massive conviction that we should do X, Y, Z, whereas uh, increasingly a board should be about, you know, corporate governance, decision-making principles um, and frameworks, not the actual decision. It should be about capital allocation and not about projects or problems, right? It should be about the people and the capability and the capital allocation. So the more you can extrapolate and elevate topics, I think the better, the more you get sucked into what about project B? What about competitor D's initiative? Like the, the worse it gets because you're discussing at the wrong end of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> then it's more of a sort of management uh, KPI discussion. What I would say is just that it requires a huge amount of discipline from everyone and commitment to making boards great and you know pre-reads that are good at signposting what we want to get out of this. Is this inform, decide, discuss? Like what's the purpose of the session? And then being very concise. And then just switching topics slightly, you uh, had a very successful career at MMC. You became partner. You progressed really fast. You had financial success. But then you decided to leave and ultimately you decided to set up um, your own venture capital firm. I just want to be slightly provocative here. But if you look at today's world, there is a wall of capital. You've got quantitative easing, low interest rates, you know, literally one in five dollars <laughs> being printed last year. So arguably, there's 10 times more competition today than when you joined MMC. So does the world really need a new VC fund? So there's different types of VCs, but in the micro VC space, which is the space that eCare and the fund that I set up is, is in, so it's a sub 100 million pound fund. I think there's always an opportunity to carve out a sort of specific space where you can work really closely with founders that are sort of mission aligned to what you as a fund want to do. And I guess over time, when you look at venture in, in Europe and in the UK versus the US um, on a sort of GDP basis, we're still relatively underpenetrated through um, versus the US, which sort of suggests there's still more opportunity to be investing in this asset class. Can, can it, you share it, a statistic on that? I'm fascinated. Yeah, I can. I might have to bring send that to you afterwards. I don't worry. Yeah, yeah don't worry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> don't have the exact statistic. I always love these numbers. Um, let's move on. Um, yeah, and I'll send it to you because they're quite interesting. Um, but but I think it means that we think there still is opportunity in the UK to carve out a new sort of space as a venture firm. And then I think we're trying to do a few things differently that's actually quite underserved from the existing venture community. Um, so one is actually the focus on consumer. So a lot of the early stage or newer funds uh, that are emerging are focused on sort of B2B software, which has less volatility. And a lot of the funds have historically been incredibly successful in consumers. So funds like Index and Excel, fund sizes have gone up so much that they're investing um, at biggest check sizes at later stage. So we think there is a sort of niche within the market at the moment, despite all of the capital uh, to be focused on consumer technology. The second point is that we sort of raised the fund focused on a thesis that we call shared value, which is building companies with profit and purpose in mind. And that's something, I guess, when we first started raising the fund, it was a relatively new concept within the sort of venture ecosystem. I think over the last two years, it's gained a huge amount of traction. But we really believe that there's the opportunity to be the leader in that space and be the go-to fund uh, of choice for founders that want to build in that way. Um, I guess we're still really early in that journey. So, so, But, you know, there's some exciting 
um, early signs that that um, thesis resonates with the types of founders that we want to want to back. And then the final thing is around founders. So our experience from both MMC and then mine at Birda was that the process that a lot of investors go through for um, deciding which founder or when you have the opportunity to, you know, how to evaluate founders is often um, very gut led. And we felt there was a real opportunity to be data led in the approach that we take to that. Still very nascent, that concept. We're hoping to improve it over time, but feel that through having that hopefully more objective process, we'll be able to identify founders that other funds don't automatically see as high potential and therefore will be sort of have the opportunity to invest in amazing individuals when not everybody else is trying to invest into them at the same time. All three hypotheses at the moment, but we're excited about the potential that those three different aspects have in terms of being able to compete in an increasingly competitive market. Uh, really fascinating. So barriers of entry down, some commoditization of VCs, and, and what you just described sounds like differentiation through value propositions or focus on consumer shared purpose, but also innovation. So founders evaluation via data, um, they're really impressive. And I love to see how the thesis plays out. I'm obviously a massive, massive believer in you um, and, and John and the team. So I'm sure you'll succeed. But it's, it's just fascinating to see how these um, markets uh, play out. And where do you think are we in the cycle today? So it's something we think about a lot. And I wish we had a crystal ball to give you a really great answer to that. The market definitely the venture market, I guess the whole investment market definitely feels like it's at the top of the cycle from a momentum perspective, from a valuation perspective, from a multiple perspective. Having said that, I think coronavirus in particular has led to a sort of once in a lifetime shift in terms of consumer behavior and the accelerated use of technology, which means that in the sort of venture space, particularly that's focused on investing in sort of new, new types of uh, technologies and models, we might actually just be at the start of a new wave of innovation, which means that that run continues for an extended period of time, possibly longer than it has in the past. So I guess how we're thinking about that as a fund, given we don't have a crystal ball, is to sort of deploy sensibly over the next um, five-year period, not to sort of invest too early in the uh, in our investment cycle and not to not invest in, in anticipation of a crash. So we're trying to make sure that we're just very disciplined and sort of um, try and maintain a good cadence. So whichever direction it comes out in, um, the portfolio comes out uh, strongly through the other side. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's such an unfair question. And it certainly feels like prices are high relative to any traditional traditional measure. And, and prices seem to be discounting unsustainable conditions. Um, and I guess you have so many more buyers in the market uh, driving asset prices up, capital is available at huge scale. But then, as you said, there's this huge, I guess, um, acceleration in existing trends caused by COVID. The world is moving online. You've got new technologies. So it's really, really hard, I find, to predict what will happen in the next X years. And I mean, my job is not to predict the future anyways, to the extent your job is. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We, uh, we also, yeah, I think predicting the future in, in terms of capital availability and market is just so difficult. <laughs> Do you anticipate an adjustment or like a shock to the system or is this just like a slower, you know, move towards more normalization? 
So we think there is a potential for a shock. I mean, even I think in the public markets in the last week, you've seen some sort of shock behavior run through the market and then it's sort of recovered. But it's definitely a market with high volatility. So I guess when COVID first hit in March and April last year, there was a sort of pullback from venture investing. Valuations came down. There were a huge number of surveys that said valuations were going to drop 30 to 40%. And then the exact opposite happened. I think they've probably gone up to the 50 to 100%, depending on what sector you're in. And so we would anticipate that at some point there is a slight correction just from the perspective that I think Series A valuations have gone up three to four X over the last um, four or five years. And so it feels like it's definitely at a point where there might be space for a correction, but that could potentially be short-lived as people realize that there is just so much opportunity created through this sort of dislocation and that change in behavior. So we're not quite, we, yeah, so that's a long way of saying we're not exactly sure right now. No, sure, <laughs> and it's a bit unfair. a more educated answer. <laughs> Um, it's a bit unfair to ask. Um, I'm super intrigued by the shared purpose point. So I love how committed to purpose, sustainability, decarbonization you are. Talk me through the shared purpose mission at Eka Ventures and how you actually filter companies based on that. Yeah, definitely. And I would say a, a huge thank you uh, to yourself for really um, helping us think through some of these these points, both sort of during our fundraising journey, but then also through the work that you've been doing Gusto in terms of reducing food waste and then increasingly um, focused on packaging. That's been a massive part of our inspiration for the thesis. I think so how we sort of view it is we, we believe that there's a unique opportunity to use sort of data science to re and engineering and increasingly biology to totally redesign industries so that they are intrinsically more sustainable or better for consumer health um, from day one, rather than sort of retrofitting those things onto an existing business model. I guess the example people always give is Tesla. Um, but, you know, actually, I think Gusto is a great example where you've both removed food waste from the supply chain, which has an incredible gross margin, uh, gross margin um, impact, and that both has a positive impact and a direct commercial impact. So we're very much focused on businesses where you can tie the data science and the innovation into driving a better product experience or a lower cost rather than investing in models where there's like a trade-off between one of those two, which I think is what you saw in sort of wave one of some of the sustainability uh, sustainability investments. Yeah, I love that. And I think so often people think, you know, it's a dichotomy, it's one or the other, it's cost um, or kind of green stuff. But in reality, as you said, in, in, in so many incidents, you can probably achieve 50% improvement to your CO2 emissions and save money at the same time. So it's a total false dichotomy. It's an incredible way to build a, a better business, to create mode, to align more closely with consumers, but also to have positive impact. So we are obsessed about the, the impact per box we now have. Um, and it's, it's definitely making us a better, more commercial business at the same point, whilst obviously delivering more happiness to customers. Yeah, and I think um, probably more happiness to em em employees as well. I think one of the Yes. Most exciting things about the early portfolio at ICA has just been the quality of individuals that those companies and founders have been able to attract at a really early stage. And I think that's often been because of the mission of what they're trying to achieve. Um, they sort of, I guess, are attracting a disproportionately good talent relative to their scale. 
Yeah, that's a really powerful point. And you talked about the importance of founders getting clear on what their strengths are and how to solve for their weaknesses. What have you learned about yourself? A few of the, I guess, the sort of key takeaways I've, I've taken about myself is that I really enjoy working in a very independent and autonomous fashion, which works really well in a venture context, but probably would work much less well in an environment where you were building a big team. And so, you know, I think I spent some time considering whether to be an operator or to stay in venture and realized uh, that my skill set was definitely suited towards sort of investing rather than operating. I think a second really big thing that I've learned about myself that I have to spend a lot of time all the time trying to improve and get better at is to be constantly open-minded. So I would never forget uh, when I sort of sat in a room um, with a whole load of people talking about Uber um, we were doing a strategy session with them. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like why would anyone invest in a business, in a taxi business? Like that just makes no sense to me. <laughs> um, and I always remember that. So every time I think something is really stupid, I just have to remind myself that someone has a unique perspective um, and there's a reason they have that perspective and try to understand what that perspective is and sort of look through the lenses of how big that could be taking into account uh, that perspective. So that's that open-mindedness is something I like work on all of the time. It's uh, it's really powerful. Funnily behind the mic I'm speaking into, I have this huge like printout that says, assume you are wrong because so many times, as you said, it's about biases. It's about different assumptions It's about suspending judgment. You know, somebody um, says something in, in an impolite way and you kind of miss the message because you're listening on a relationship level. So one of my biggest learnings has certainly been around the power of really obsessing about the truth and, and just assuming all my assumptions are wrong and going deep into why people say stuff, which, which has been fun. Yeah, and I don't know how you find it, but I definitely find in those moments of when you're not at, when you're at your sort of best self, it's really easy to do it. And then the days where you're just trying to get through things or you're maybe not at your best self, it's really hard to continually make sure you do that. Yeah, no, totally. And how do you stay motivated? So you said you're motivated by independence, autonomy, but I guess um, it must feel quite lonely. You know, I, I feel like I'm in the business of team uh, sport. It's all about the team. It doesn't matter what the individual does as much. It's about systems, processes, structures, team charters, you know, conditions. But like if you are an investor and you're investing on your own, how do you, I guess, intrinsically motivate yourself? Uh, and I guess um, linking this to the earlier point that the feedback loop might take a couple of years. Yeah, so, I, so it's probably less about um, sort of independence or like... Um, All of the time, it's definitely around like an ability to manage a large, large team. So as a team, we're like a very close knit team and we have super strict OKRs. We speak to each other every day and have an ongoing sort of feedback loop that makes sure that we try to improve sort of continuously. But I think in terms of motivation, it's really around working with incredible founders and trying to help and empower them on a journey to like achieve things that really don't feel possible at the start of that journey. And that's really why I get out of bed every morning. Like I just love working and learning from some of the founders that we're working with. I think we're co-investors together on um, Sourceful. But, you know, every time I sort of have a call from one of their founders, I'm like, wow, that's just such a unique, unique insight or such something so interesting. I need to go away and sort of think about it. And the potential that those businesses have to totally change how the world operates in the future is just, yeah, keeps me motivated. 
activated all the time. <laughs> yeah, I know, com- completely get it. And why do you think some companies, startups succeed on the way to scale up and others not? Like, have you been able to put your finger on, I mean, there's obviously product market fit, but there must be more around indigestion, you know, self-inflicted pain. What, so I think one of the really key things that we've learned and we look for is operational excellence. And it doesn't necessarily need to come from the founder. If they're a founder that doesn't have that skill set, but the company itself needs to have it from a really early stage. So where we've seen companies go on to be successful, it's normally been because there's like a high level of operational excellence. And as you were just saying, like great processes, great focus on people, a real focus on learning and development within the organization. And that set them up to be able to ride the various different uh, bumps and waves that come along the way as a journey scales. I think the where we've seen companies be less successful, it's definitely where they haven't invested early enough in those processes, in the discipline of sort of frameworks, and they haven't built out the quality of team early enough, or they sort of, you know, haven't like upskilled the team to a point that they're appropriate for that stage of business. So we are really quite obsessed on backing founders that are obsessed with um, operational excellence. That's lucky for Gusto then. Um, <laughs> look, thank you. you guys are definitely masters of operational excellence. We're trying to fail to success. And yeah, thanks for all the trust you had in, in Gusto in the early days. This was literally a year or two years after foundation. Um, so massive, massive um, thanks to you for the trust. Thank you so much for taking the time and being so generous, Camilla. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I love what you're doing at Eka Ventures. Uh, Thank you, Timo. Really great to speak to you. And uh, yeah, thank you for allowing us to invest in Gusto back in the day.